I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 289. Today on the show, I'm joined by Matt Dye and Adam Keith of Land and Legacy to discuss their holistic approach to habitat management and food plots. All right, welcome to the Wired Done Podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we've got Matt Dye and Adam Keith joining us. And these guys are the owners of Land and Legacy, which is a habitat consulting business as well as a content platform, which they're producing all sorts of podcasts and videos and blogs and all sorts of things revolved around managing and improving properties for deer and other wildlife. But they're doing this in a way that's, that's, I think, pretty different than most others out there, right? There's all sorts of different habitat experts out there. We've talked to some of them on the podcast, and they're great. But Matt and Adam bring this unique perspective that's very focused on on trying to harness the natural processes and systems out there, trying to do things that are more in line with with the natural way of things, more in tune with Mother Nature instead of fighting against it with these unnatural disturbances or whatever it might be. And I think this leads to a... It's kind of a philosophical conversation to a degree, but then also we get to some very tactical things too. So we talk high-level habitat ideas, why they look at the natural world in this way, why they try to approach their management projects in this way. But then also we get right into you know the nitty-gritty details of how to plant better food plots, how to improve different parts of you know old fields or a timber stand, how to do these things in ways that, that require less of this unnatural contact, you know, how we can get a, get away with getting great food plots with less herbicide. How can we do things with reduced tillage? How can we find ways to, to maybe go against the conventional wisdom to some degree as far as the negative impacts we might have, but still getting great benefits for deer and deer hunting and other wildlife. That, in a very vague, high-level kind of sense, is what we're going to be discussing today. Um, and I promise you, it is very interesting and very applicable to what I think a lot of us will be focusing on here in the coming days, weeks, and months as we head into the season. These final, you know, this build up to hunting season for a lot of us, if you can manage properties to any degree, or even if you just want to someday, the content, the kind of stuff we discuss today is going to be very, very useful. All right, with me on the line now, we've got Adam Keith and Matt Dye from Land and Legacy. Welcome to the show, guys. 
Hey, Mark. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Appreciate it, sir. Yeah, I appreciate it as well. And it's it's I should, probably should have brought Dan in here since you guys are part of Sportsman's Nation, and and I'm kind of like yanking out his superstars out from underneath him and, and talking to you guys <laughs> on on our show here. But uh, I'm glad that the Nine Fingered Wonder is willing to share with you you guys with Wired to Hunt because I think you guys have a good a really good thing going. Um, I've been enjoying the Land and Legacy podcasts. It's the, one of the only other hunting related podcasts at all that I actually listen to because so much of it I'm consuming all the time. But you guys give me something that's a little bit different, a little bit outside of the norm um, when it comes to habitat and management that I think is is relative unique in our space and is needed, which is which is why I wanted to have you guys on the show to talk about that. Um, and it's also, I told you this before we start recording, but I've been out west for like a month, month and a half now just kind of thinking about all the work I have to do once I get home. And like my blood pressure has been steadily rising. I'm having like night sweats. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, you have to get this done and this done and this done and this done. So you guys are going to help prepare me for my return. I'm going to be home in just a matter of days. So I'm counting on you guys to have me all buttoned up and ready to rock and roll once I hit the ground. So can you do that? (laughs) That's a lot of pressure right there. I think we're up for the task. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of what we do is prioritizing the projects. So. Yeah, exactly. So, so what? How, how is that going for you guys personally so far this summer? What are you What are you focusing on right now? Great question. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Probably there's always a lot of irons in the fire. I think that's what's common among a lot of people. But um, right now, a big portion of it is is taking inventory uh, of what's out there and then kind of connecting the dots and, and, and making sure we're going back and looking at historical information of some patterns that we've seen over the past couple of years. And then from there, that's going to guide the actual in the field tasks that get done. Yeah. And, and if you're asking specific projects that we're trying to line out is, you know, we just, as you mentioned earlier, we're consulting. So a big part of our spring and early summer is consulting. So summer is when we get to do a lot of the work. We laugh when we're consulting. The cobbler's kids don't have shoes. We're land, <laughs> I guess, land consultants, but we don't get to work on our own land most of the, for a big part of the year, especially the, the best time of the year to be doing a lot of work. So we've got projects lined out where we're trying to get to the farm. We've got our trail cameras up, but we're, we planted our food plots in uh, mid-May. And now we're really trying to line out and try to improve bedding areas and edge feathering. That's a that's a big project for us this summer. And and do you guys have, you know, how many different properties are you managing for your own hunting, your own family activity and stuff like that? What kind of workload is that? So there's basically two farms, but they're adjoining. So it's one big contiguous piece of ground that's about 900 acres. Okay. So that'll keep you busy. Now, yeah, it does. And between Matt and I, and then my brother, it's it's the three of us that really do a, a huge part of the work. And and you know, I, I'm sure we'll get into it. But a big project that's been occurring was the timber harvest. And so we've seen our deer numbers. It doesn't appear that we have a lot of deer really active on the farms right now because most of them are in the areas that's been thinned, and there's all kinds of native browsing. So. That's where all our deer are, so it's been a little bit tricky to get pictures of the deer this summer. So you mentioned this this timber harvest and the fact there's so much native vegetation and, and browse out there now. 
That makes me think about a statement I've heard you both make a handful of times, which is the fact that when you work on these different types of habitat projects for, for wildlife, for whitetails, whatever it might be, you're trying to work with nature, not against it. And it seems like I hear that popping up again and again, and you apply it to different things. It's not like you're just using that phrase in relation to just food plots. It's something that seems to be like a, a holistic philosophy that goes across all the decisions you guys make. What does that That's mean for you guys? I, 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 yeah, I, I think if somebody were to say sum up land and legacy in your mindset in one phrase, it would probably be. That would probably be one of them that oh, we use often sure. is working with nature, not against it. So explain that for me. Why does that matter? How does that actually manifest itself in what you guys do? Okay. For example, let's we'll jump back into the timber harvest and, and the native browse. So this area that uh, was timber harvested, was it was neglected timber for years and years and years. And this site historically was a woodland um, and a woodland is kind of a, a broad phrase so I'll try to key in on that and say that a woodland uh, an upland woodland which is what this site is was typically a lot of trees but also had 30 to 40 you could even drop down and say 20 percent more sunlight than a closed canopy forest and so with that amount of sunlight you had herbaceous plants um, and also more young, uh, young forests growing within these woodlots in these forests. So you had su sufficient amounts of forage and cover for wildlife, not just deer, but all for wildlife. Um, and so, you know, as you neglect your timber, as, as this area had, it was really just becoming more of a, an area that deer and wildlife passed through and weren't surviving and flourishing there. And so with this timber harvest, um, of course, the landowner made money, but at most importantly, it opened up that canopy to where there's a huge flush of sunlight. And then we followed up with some timber stand improvement um, to really try to restore the landscape. Um, and once we open that canopy up, it's important that we return prescribed fire, um, fire being a huge part of the landscape of what really shaped this part of the country and a lot of parts of the country. And so by doing that, we're just replicating nature. Now the timber harvest, you're gonna say, well, that's not replicating nature, but the way fire went across the landscape, it naturally thinned timber and caused these openings and, and would find weak trees and thin them out to where you had this landscape of kind of a mosaic of openings and timber and more of an open uh, forest. And so because of that, we've now restored the landscape and it's going to be much more beneficial to the wildlife because we're just restoring what was there pre-settlement. Did I get that right? Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, that's, that's the big thing is, okay, understanding what the soil type is, what historically was there, what disturbances naturally happen. And then you can understand, okay, this site was, let's say a woodland or this site was a glade. That's what those conditions based on the climate, based on the average rainfall, based on the soil types, that's what it should be. So if we're trying to make it something that it's not, it's going to be inferior to the, the natural uh, landscape that it should be. So why not just work with Mother Nature, restore it to what the site tells us it should be. And we know by default then with all these disturbances that we're going to follow up with, it's going to be the best that it can be. And, and that site now has got 
thousand, I, I don't know how many pounds of food. I'd say probably around 2,000 pounds of food an acre each year that's producing, whereas before close canopy, you were talking under 100 pounds. It was, it was just leaves and sticks. And, and so kind of working with nature, this was the only area we had, we'd say, well, we need to have a food plot in here. And because of the soil type and being a west-facing, kind of a southwest-facing slope, it's definitely, it would have been a problematic food plot where we would have had to pour soil amendments, um, the fertilizer and lime to try and get it productive when we can just look at the natives and say, that's good enough. And that's that's probably better than we could ever do with food plot. Yeah, I've heard you guys kind of walk through other examples like this where where someone tries to force a food plot into an area and then you raise the question, well, what was growing there naturally before? Or what should there be naturally if you, you know, what could you be producing without needing to put all this money into herbicide and fertilizer and seed and all this? Um, how do you guys, how do you guys try to recommend people make that decision? Like how should me as the average guy or girl look, what am I trying to say here? How do we know when that's the case? How do we know when we're making that mistake? Great, great question. I, and there's tools out there. Um, one thing that we u- utilize a lot is called the Web Soil Survey. And that allows you to go and look at the type of soils that you have. And then usually, or, or in some instances, that will provide you with an ecological site assessment. There's a lot of big words to say, historically, what was here? What was there way back when, um, based again on the soil types and the climate? Um, so those tools and you can go, you can look at, just type in the Google web soil survey and search your area. Um, and hopefully it'll pull up that information, but that then will allow you to say, okay, this is what it was. It will always pull up the soil type. Sure. But the ecological site assessment, again, sometimes that isn't pulled up on, on each site, but typically it will give you a really good indication of what the area should be. And then that'll help guide you to make those management decisions down the road. So I guess in simple terms, there's two big, two big things that need to come in mind on whether you should have a food pot or there, uh, food pot or not there. What's the soil? Can it actually grow a, a profitable or successful food plot um, or crop? And then, can you hunt it even if you were able to plant it? I think that's where we see a lot of times where there's a a landowner just bought a property and there's a an opening down in a valley in a bowl. And it's like, well, it's already open. I'll plant it in the food plot. And then they try to hunt it and the wind swirls and it's just, you cause more problems um, than success. And so that would be another huge part of whether or not you should plant this area in a food plot. Yeah. So back to the native vegetation. So let's say you find a spot like that and you, you determine, okay, no, this isn't going to work very well for a food plot for whatever reason. Maybe historically, that's just not what should be there. Maybe it's the wind issue, but you want to try to manage this native landscape in some kind of way to make sure you're maximizing its potential. Um, you mentioned timber harvest is one thing you would do in a closed canopy type situation. What are some of the things that you're thinking through as far as managing other areas, let's say open areas that could have been planted food plots, but for one reason or another, you don't want to do that. Um, how do you think through those types of situations? I'm actually in, this, in a, 
I have some opportunities like that now, like old fields that I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to, to work with this. Um, what's the, it can be a little bit daunting. You've got this big field. Conventional wisdom is spray it, burn it, plant it. Um, but to your point, maybe I can just work with nature and not need to do that. Um, can you kind of walk us through your perspective on how to think about that kind of thing? What kind of potential is there? What value is there for wildlife? I know there's a lot, but sometimes people don't realize that when they just see a scrubby field. Um, where, where's your guys' heads at with that kind of thing? Absolutely. That's one of our favorite, I, I guess, open areas that aren't food plots would be one of our favorite things to try to manage um, because you, you, it's a blank canvas. Um, one of the biggest things, and I think you see it a lot in QDMA articles called old field management. Um, that's typically where we will take an area that's maybe it was crop. Uh, or maybe it was pasture, uh, some sort of typically, if you say pasture, it might be a cool season, uh, non-native, such as tall fescue or smooth brome, uh, or down south, it may be a warm season, non-native, a uh, bahia grass or um, Bermuda grass. And so basically, we're trying to convert it to something more um, productive for the, for the wildlife. And so typically, um, this is where we get into the herbicide use and probably the most popular way that we use herbicides is a hopefully once or twice application during the peak time of that non-native. So if it's a cool season grass, we're going in after the first couple of frosts and maybe in your area it's November or late October and all the other natives have gone dormant. You're spraying that area out and you're letting that, you're basically killing that non-native. Um, or it could be during the during the warm season down south with bahia grass, if you have a very dominated field of bahia grass, you're spraying that out, trying to kill it, and you're basically just pulling the tarp, if you will, off the off the ground and saying, "Okay, Mother Nature, Nature, fix it, put something back here." Nature's way is to always cover the soil. Um, the, nowhere in nature do you find exposed soil in a common practice, basically, of, for instance, like tillage. So. You're pulling the tarp off and you're letting nature fill back what should be there to cover the soil. Sometimes if you're in heavy crop places and you cut out a little bit, but if it's heavy crop places, you might have a little bit of problem of getting those beneficial plants um, back. And so you may have to, your best option may be going into and trying to plant some sort of pollinator blend or grass blend um, and trying to restore a grass in site. Um, if you're in a place that's experienced heavy tillage and heavy herb herbicide applications over the years. But a great option for that would be equip programs through the government um, to restore these grasslands and pollinator areas. Can, can you, Matt, I know you. Yeah, uh, yeah go ahead. Go, go ahead, Mark. I, I should let you go, Matt, because I'm about to pivot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Basically, you know, there, there's a lot of times the composition of that field really dictates what the first moves are. When I say composition, it's like what is in there, how much how much beneficial species are in there. Let's say it's 60% versus 40% bad. You might just be do, going in and, and targeting these bad species. Maybe they're non-native invasive like autumn olive or cerisa lepidiza, and you can just do spot spray applications to address those trouble areas and then let that success that succession take over producing annual weeds the first couple of years and then turning over into more perennial things. But like Adam said, addressing the bad and then letting Mother Nature just replace it, um, deer, 
and a lot of wild game species live from four foot and down. So that first bit of cover that naturally comes back, it's usually very beneficial for a lot of different animals. And I think uh, I want to share one story real quick on on exactly what what we're just talking about. And it goes to southern Iowa and a property that used to be a cattle property. And it was all pretty much smooth brome and um, tall fescue. We went in, assessed the ground, and helped the landowner restore a prairie. Websoil survey told us that parts of this property were prairie and oak savanna, so we knew it was a grassland-dominated landscape historically. So we went in and we sprayed, uh, helped them spray uh, during during the spring, actually. It was during March, and then we returned in early May and burned it. And it went from shin-high to knee-high non-native cool-season grass to chest-high and above chest-high or above head-high grasses and forbs, goldenrod, big blue stem, Indian grass, all kinds of ragweed. Um, uh, the list goes on. Milkweed everywhere um, to a point where a significant shift in deer activity happened on the sites that we were restoring. We didn't do the whole landscape. Immediately we did. We broke it up into quadrants. And every time we focused in on an area, that's where the deer would shift to chase those, um, chase that cover and those beneficial forbs in the burned areas. It's that story there. It's just one example of, of many that have been restored, but it's incredible to see the response of the native vegetation and then correlate that with the response of hunting observations and stories and success based in and around those areas that have been treated and restored as what they should be historically speaking. So here's the challenge that I've faced as I've been thinking this through myself. Um, the situation you just outlined seemed like it would work very well. But if I'm in a situation like I think it was you, Adam, who mentioned, you know, sometimes you have to come in in late October or November and spray it for certain species. And then the next year you can go in and possibly replant it with a pollinator blend or whatever it might be. So many of these different management strategies will require that herbicide application during the hunting season, like during the heat of the hunting season, like the very best time. I would rather someone cut off my pinky toes than me go out there the first week of November <laughs> and go all over my property, you know, and spook every single buck off yeah. the field. Um, so do it in the spring. So you can get away with the spring application. Like it's not absolutely have absolutely. to do it in that fall. No, but we've had, you'll get a better, most likely a better success rate out of a fall application, but we've had great success in the spring because, um, everyone's in that same boat. (laughs) Yeah. We're all sitting here going, I know I should do it, but I'm not going to because I'm going to be in a tree state. Yeah. Spring. Yeah. And it could be March. Basically we always just look and see, um, you, you want to have that whole clump of tall fescue or smooth brome greening up. Um, and there's like a two week window in there where it's already greening up before a lot of the other natives start to pop. Okay. So, so what about this also, the fact that we were talking all about these, these old fields and managing them and trying to, you know, improve the type of cover types there and the food source there and everything. But I I do think that it's not as sexy as the food plus most people at home want that beautiful green carpet of clover or whatever. They see the brushy field and the average guy or girl just sees an opportunity to do something else. Um, 
Can you just speak to the value there? Like, I know there's a tremendous amount of value, but can you just help us, like, help illustrate that? Like, what does an old brushy field that's well-managed do for us as, you know, managers, as hunters? There's a lot of value there, right? Mm. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, I, I don't, great, great question. Yeah, I don't think I, there's anything sexy about what we do in the, in the management, but I think it's a mindset change that would need to occur. Um, when you think about, to me, I... I, I I guess the I'll go straight hillbilly on you here. Whenever you see, when I see these brushy fields, I automatically in my head I'm like, "Ooh, that looks bucky." Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, you can we can go in there in November and kick out a big buck probably with a doe, or we'll go in there in December and kick out a bunch of rabbits. It's just very wildlife friendly, um, but it's not aesthetically pleasing. And I think anybody listens to our podcast, listens to us talk, aesthetics is not something and we go for because nowhere in nature once again working with nature not against her is aesthetics is not something that nature cares about um it's a very chaos driven way of management and so we're really just trying to be as chaotic but most importantly as diverse as possible chaotic and strategic i I think i think you have to ask yourself the question is why am i why am i improving this am i improving it for myself or am I improving it for the wildlife? Because again, the wildlife doesn't care where it looks like it's sleeping. It just cares that it's secure. And, and to answer the question about, you know, let's compare a food plot to let's say an old field stand is that food plot. Yes, it produces a lot of forage per year, but it's only producing forage. Whereas in comparison to an old field stand, you take an acre of that next door to a food plot, you have both forage and cover in the exact same acre and not just forage during a certain time frame if if it's old field and you have that component of shrubs you now have food and and you can look at almost anywhere in the country and you'll see really browsed heavily food plots during that late winter early spring but you'll also can turn around and go to a field of an old field and see natives already popping that deer could be browsing on so they're already providing forage um, during the very early spring, and then they're flourishing through the summer, providing tons of forage, and then at the same time providing cover. But then you go into the fall, and you still have diversity in that old field where you still have forage available with certain species. But then you take it in the winter, there's cover there, but then that's when you, those shrubs and that woody browse is abundant to where you've got food year-round and cover year-round in an old field or a prairie grassland landscape. If I'm if I'm a guy who's got limited acres to hunt and manage, I want each and every acre. It's more important for each and every acre to have multiple uses, as in food and cover, than just one. So I want it to, my property to be the most attractive the longer periods of the year or throughout the entire year, not just these peaks that we see in food plot acres. So. Yeah. Old field is roughly 3,000 pounds of digestible forage a year. Food plots, depending on the species, is four to 5,000, some, somewhere in that neighborhood. But food plots don't provide cover. Old field does. So you're killing two birds with one stone in old field situations. And it also, you have to pay for the food plot every single year. Yeah. Usually. Heck of a lot more work. Yeah. So another benefit of these, of these old field type habitats 
or some other kind of plantings you can do is that they benefit pollinator species, things like monarch butterflies and bees and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, this, this, the notion of, of managing or trying to improve habitat for pollinators is something that's beginning to be talked about a little bit more in our world, just a little bit. Um, it's something I've been paying a lot of attention to here recently and starting to try to factor into my management plans. Um, can you speak to why that matters? Like, why should a deer hunter, if someone would call themselves a deer hunter first and foremost, why should they care about something like that? Um, and how might that benefit their deer-related goals too? Absolutely. Uh, we'll have to be very careful when you start mentioning monarchs and, and pollinators so we don't nerd out on this end of the phone. <laughs> um, so it, it kind of goes with that whole caring about the holistic um, landscape. Um, and, and we're looking at trying to manage for not only pollinators, but the microbes and the microbial activity and the, the microbes in the soil all the way up to other bird species. And if you... Deer are relatively pretty easy to manage for when it when you look at them from a whole, I guess, nationwide landscape. You'll find them in residential areas eating azaleas or whatever else in, in plantings. And so they're pretty adaptive. Um, but you start looking at monarchs and pollinators, they're, they take a little bit more um, little bit more management. The reason we should care about those is because if you have this diverse landscape to where you're providing benefits to species like the monarch butterfly or some of our native pollinators, you have them on your landscape. It tells us we have enough diversity on the landscape to provide all the benefits to the deer um, to where they don't have to go to the neighboring properties or five miles down the road to find species to survive. You should have everything there when you get this diversity of species. Yeah, it's kind of like a you know, you can use it as an indicator species or an indicator of quality of the habitat that's there. If you have a lot of pollinator species, oh, well, then I'm doing a great job of managing my property. And I know other species like deer and turkey and quail. If you look at quail and turkey poults, most of their diet when they're first born is all insect-based. So you can't have those types of species without a good, good population of insects aka pollinators things like that you won't have huntable population so you need to be managing and looking for these indicator species to know where you stand and the quality of habitat you're providing yeah and i think there's a lot of species we look for if we go up to the northeast it's like oh matt was in uh pennsylvania this spring or a couple months ago and got into an area where it's like, boy, the habitat looks like it's, it, the habitat is getting good around here. Out jumps some rough grouse. And it's like, oh, perfect. That's exactly what we're going for. Um, down here in the Midwest, it may be northern bobwhite quail. Uh, but pollinators, compare it to closed canopy forest. That's not providing anything for pollinators, hardly, uh, specifically monarch butterfly. And so if you don't have them if you don't have the species within your timber, then you're not, you probably don't have the species that are providing much benefit to the white-tailed deer. But if you have them out in your open areas, then those same species that the, poll that the pollinators are using, the deer use as well for browse. Um, and then some of them, like goldenrod, grow up tall enough to provide cover as well. So, so um, 
one of the situations I've been encountering or learning about a little bit more here recently are the government programs that are out there to incentivize the improvement of pollinator habitat. Because, right, there's, there's at a very high level, you guys can probably speak to this better than I can, but at a very high level, we're noticing significant declines in many pollinator species population levels across the country. And these pollinator species play a very important role across a number of facets, especially agriculture. A huge amount of our crops out there depend on some degree of pollination as, as well as many other things going on across the, the nation without these butterflies, without these bees, without these other insects, if we really do dramatically lose many of those populations, we're in trouble. They, they, they do a lot of natural, they provide a lot of benefits to these different natural systems. So because we're, we're facing this crisis of some sort, the government, state and federal, has a number of different programs out there to incentivize private landowners to put in or to try to manage their property in some kind of way that will provide the habitat these these animals need, these creatures need. So they'll give you maybe cost assistance with provide, you know, get, buying seed or buying spray. Um, they might even pay rental payments on stuff like this part of CRP, whatever it is. Um, so the point being is that there are these programs that you can get involved in that will incentivize you, help you manage the cost to manage an old field like this, to put to plant a pollinator blend or something. So you'll get some cost assistance out of it. But then, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the types of things that these guys are, are helping you pay for, these pollinator blends, these native grasses and wildflowers and stuff, that's tremendous wildlife habitat across the board, right? That's not just great for butterflies and bees. That's great for deer and turkeys and poults, everything you just said, right? Absolutely. I think if, if if you were to ask me, if you were to put me in a corner and tie my hands behind my back and say, from November 1st, November 15th, you can either hunt food plots or you can hunt old fields. I'll no doubt say I'll, I'll hunt an old field because I know sooner or later I'm gonna it's going to pay off big for me. Uh, I'll, I'll be on the other side of that old field <laughs> with a bow in hand, too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. And, and and I mean, food is definitely important and food plots are great. We plant food plots ourselves. But at the same time, uh, I think cover is a huge part um, that that is sometimes overlooked and, and not used. And so these pollinator programs, not only do they help. Basically, you're coming at it from a pollinator approach of saying, OK, we're doing this for the pollen for the pollinators. But your deer are benefiting just as much. And in most instances, if it's a crop field, yeah, sure, the crops provided some benefit to the deer during a portion of the year. But this is year-round benefit to the to the wildlife. And the government is helping you do it. And it's not only making that area better, but the area around it, the other parts of the, uh, of the land, much more productive. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in 
ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You talked about, um, as we were kind of getting to this topic, the fact that you are focusing, you nerd out really, on a lot of the, the minute aspects of landscape health, things like microbes, things like pollinators, things like soil health. Um, and all of this is all related to another topic that I've been really geeking out myself on, which is this idea of regenerative agriculture and how to pl- apply some of these ideas we're talking about to now if we are going to actively manage a piece of ground or some portion of it to try to plant a crop, a food plot of some sort, trying to do that in a way that's in sync with nature, I think is a natural next step from what we've been talking about here. There's there's managing what's already there. And then if we are going to add something new, how do we do that in a way that um, that is as beneficial as possible without pulling in any of the negative side effects of some of the tools that are typically used within the conventional agricultural world. Um, tell me a little bit about just why or how regenerative agriculture, however you guys want to refer to this kind of concept as, how that became something you guys are interested in and why it's so appealing. I know, I think out of, out of failures, uh, definitely out of failures and mentors of mine, um, over the years. Uh, and then that was, I mean, years ago, uh, in the 2000, probably 2008, nine. And then also again, 2010, I worked with some guys that had this mentality before it was called regenerative agriculture. Um, but they had a very holistic mindset. One was a cattle farmer who just tried to add as much diversity in his pastures as possible. Um, to a point where he was like, I'm not, fertilizing. I'm not adding any soil amendments. I'm using the cattle to fertilize my pastures, but I'm moving them. Basically, all I'm doing is replicating what the bison herds did years ago. And back then, as a young guy that really, I mean, I was still young, focused on, I want to kill the biggest deer in this county. And so looking back, I'm like, man, he was so ahead of his time in in that mindset. Um, And then I worked for another guy who was a he worked for the conservation department and he was the one who encouraged planting diverse food plots because we need to be thinking about all the native species, not just deer. 
And both those guys were huge and in, in really pouring in that mindset of, you know, there's more there's more out here than just deer. And if you focus on trying to help species that need more help, pollinators, bobwhite quail, um, redhead woodpecker, all kinds of other species that may be a, a species of concern, your deer are still benefiting just as much. Um, and it, and probably going to do better than just your typical food plot closed canopy forage management that you see a lot. So for, for myself, I grew up on the East Coast, specifically within the Chesapeake Bay watershed. And there's a lot of, of course, laws and things like that, um, nutrient management in that area. And that, I'm not going to say is the birthplace at all, but a humongous uh, wave of cover cropping began in the Chesapeake Bay watershed, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, those type of areas, Pennsylvania as well. Um, and so I was kind of immersed in that, kind of grew up in, in a farming community background with family. And so I've kind of always known cover cropping, no-till drilling, and just kind of knew, gosh, why why wouldn't you do this kind of stuff? And then moving out to the Midwest is like, oh, wow, that, that wave of information um, hadn't made it this far out yet. It's like, well, we can apply it elsewhere too, not just from a farming standpoint, but why wouldn't we do it in, in like food plot acres as well? So yeah. that was kind of like that information, like, wow, we, we can we can take this application in a farming sense. And because again, the soil's foundation, why not, why not learn the foundation, the knowledge behind how to manage it learn it, and then apply what we need to in food plot situations. So can you walk us through your guys' process for your typical food plot? Because I know it's different than the usual, the, the the typical person out there who's who's going about doing things in the conventional way. The way you guys are operating is is pretty unique compared to that. Can you walk us through what that process throughout the year looks like for you? And then as you do that, explain why what you're doing is beneficial. Yeah, so sticking to food plots, I guess, our typical process. And I don't know if there's anything typical about what we do. <laughs> I'm trying to think of because we're always testing and trying new things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a typical way that we would plant a food plot is yeah, our goal is to have diversity. Um, and we can't always do that. We weren't able to do that on my family farm because of years of heavy tillage um, and, and problematic species like crabgrass. But our typical way is to spray uh, two quarts per acre of glyphosate pre-planting. So sometime in April, we will spray um, and then we will plant uh, a diverse blend, eight or more species typically. And that's it. That's all we're going to do until August rolls around. And then we're going to go back in. Hold on. And, time out. Time um, out. Time out. let's make sure like a lot of people would hear you say spray and then plant and they think well what about all the in-between stuff there's no in-between for you right am i I hearing you right that you are spraying and then how long of a time period are you waiting between the spray and then going and planting and how are you planting are you is this drilling it are you broadcasting it are you what are you doing there give me a little more detail oh yeah all the above. <laughs> yeah. So we've got two different techniques and, and we've tried because I think there's a, in the food plot world, there's, there's, I guess, practical for most guys. And then there's what our goals are, are the, the top of the summit is, okay, if I'm planting a food plot, what is the very best thing I can do to ensure a productive food plot? 
and, and that's no-till drilling. Um, but at the same time, that's not practical for a lot of guys. But for us, we have easy access. We can rent a no-till drill uh, right in our county uh, USDA office. And so we spray, and then it may be two days or it may be a week before we go in with the no-till drill and we drill our food plot. And then we don't do anything. If we plant what we want, and, and it's typically this diverse blend, it's got sun hemp, cowpeas, I can list those out, sunflowers, um, milo millets. We plant that and then we don't do anything until August when we plant our fall plot. Um, and we may do the same thing, or we may just drill right through the standing. We, it, we don't really have a system that's like, we do this every it, single time. It really depends, honestly, watching how that food plot grows throughout the summer depends on the incoming rains. Um, you know, what are, what are we expecting for the fall? And, and here's another important thing to note is, is no-till planting also includes broadcasting. That's a form. If you're not doing any tillage and you're simply broadcasting seed onto the ground into duff or, or thatch layer, we've done that with a lot of success. And I think it's important to note that that's a form of no-tilling, planting. It's just not utilizing a no-till drill. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of people want to say, hey, I, I, I want to be conscious of the, the soil and not till it but I, I can't get a no-till drill. Well, we'll know that you're still doing no-till practices by broadcasting seed. But from our experience, you have to have a an adequate thatch layer and rains to allow that seed to germinate. But it will absolutely work. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess if you wanted to sum up our two processes for planting food plots that we use most of the time is spraying. And within a week, we no-till drill. Typically, that's more important in the spring with bigger seeds like corn or soybeans. Um, and then we also use a technique that is basically we spray, we broadcast, and we then cultipack or roll or drag um, that area that we just sprayed. And basically, that is, that is what we found as being the most successful way to, uh, to have a food plot without having any other equipment besides a four-wheeler and a, a drag or a cultivator. Um, but that that system is very, it's very important that you have rain forecasted and coming. So so give me a little more detail as far as the specifics, because that, that scenario right there is what I was trying this spring myself. And I was trying it to plant food plot screens. So I'd never done this before. I never tried the, the no-till broadcast only approach, but I thought, you know, I'm going to give this a shot. Um, so what happened for me that was trying to figure out what's the right order of operations, what's the right gap in time between things, between when I spray and when I broadcast versus and what I, I did the throw and mow. So I tried spray, broadcast, yeah. mow over top. Um, but can you walk me through the like the actual details of the ideal scenario, like when you would do the spraying, how long you'd wait to broadcast or what the right order is and all that? What's worked the best for you guys at least? And sorry, one yeah. more additional question. What types of seeds does this kind of thing work for versus what types of seeds would not? So typically, um, the best case scenario for this to work is you get some rain, you have moisture in the soil, you go out and you broadcast your seed. You can do this a couple of ways, but most importantly, you've got rain, so you've got moisture, you go out and you spray it and you kill it. 
and then you return and and we've done this the same day spray it and then turn around and broadcast the same day or you can wait a few days but the key is that you have thatch that's going to be the biggest thing to ensure a success or one of the big things because you need something to cause this almost vapor barrier and hold that moisture in um, to where you get good seed um, germination at the same time it protects those seeds from being eaten by birds and, and mice and, and other and yeah and other animals so having moisture in the soil then also having a thatch layer and it could be only knee-high grass it could be just tall fescue I would say it, it could be your fall food plot that you're spraying out or it could be a pasture that or a portion of a patch that you have permission to plant yeah that thatch layer is super important so moist ground spray broadcast either day of or, or, or day after, and then you hope for rain to come and lay that thatch right over top of it. Yeah, or you can drag it right over yeah. the top of it. Um, the, the biggest thing is having that thatch layer and having rain coming is what's going to make that um, And make successful. sure that, that rain is not an absolute gully washer. <laughs> Even if you have some thatch, that that water, that amount of water in a short period of time is going to redistribute that seed across the field and you'll have really heavy patches, really light patches. So just make sure it's a nice gentle rain and, and a strong um, percentage of rain coming and walk away and, and let nature run its course. Those seeds will germinate, come up through the thatch. And that the beauty of the thatch is that once those seeds germinate, let's say you've got a little bit of a you know, duff layer, that's helping protect those seeds and, and that tender vegetation establish a root system so that when it does jump above the thatch layer, it can resist some of that browse. You know, it can handle some of that bus pressure that's going to come. The most important thing that you can do is protect young, basically young forage from getting over browse. And that thatch layer helps do that. Absolutely. And, and so when you're asking about species that it works best with, smaller seeds is always better. Um, so that's why in the fall, you tend to Everybody has probably at some point planted a fall food plot of wheat and spilled some in the back of their truck. And three weeks later, they turn around, and they've got a food plot growing in the back of the truck. <laughs> um, it's a really hardy species that can grow in gravel and same with cereal rye. And, um, so those species do really well with this application. But we've had success planting soybeans and oh, cowpeas. Yeah. Um, but it all comes back to having the thatch layer and having an adequate moisture. Um, to ensure success. Uh, I'll speak, Mark, if you don't mind, people are probably listening going, that sounds way too complicated. I'm going to keep tilling. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll speak a little bit on, uh, I guess, my experience. If you want to dial it way back um, over, I, I think when I calculated this, I think it's about 21 or 22 years we've been planting food plots at my family farm. Ozark Mountains, very shallow soils, not a lot of organic matter. When we started planting food plots, uh, I almost cringe explaining this, but we had a big plow, disc plow. Um, so it was a two-disc plow. We plowed the entire field. Then we turned around and we broke out the disc and we disced the entire field to break up that sod layer. And then we harrowed that entire field. And then we broadcasted our seed. And then we drugged the field. Um, it was a long process. Weeks. Weeks. We would start that because we only had a 30-horse Massey Ferguson. Um, and so it took weeks of preparing it and getting it ready. And uh, we, I don't know, 
you know, if we go to some of our other parts of our farm, we have organic matter up close to six. But if you go into the areas of our food plots, we're down around four. Um, and so we had very poor soils. And with our heavy tillage for almost 15 years, it really, really drained our successful food plots and, and drained organic matter to where it had to be almost perfect conditions for us to get a successful food plot. And when we realized what was occurring when this whole no-till thing started hitting the Ozarks and we started getting into it, we realized that what took 15 years to accomplish was going to take a lot more years, probably double, to correct what had happened. Um, and so guys in, in heavy, you know, you've got all kinds of topsoil. You're in Iowa. You may never see that. You, you could till and till and till, and you may never see it. But at some point, somebody is going to see the negative impacts of that heavy tillage. And most people aren't in those soils. Yeah. The, the vast majority of deer hunters don't have the luxury of planting food plots in that type of soil that seem to be endless. Most of us are in situations like this where it's rougher, poorer soils. So you have to treat, again, you're only as good as that, um, the food plot preparations. And if you're going in and right out of the gate, destroying the soil that you're banking on, helping you grow a crop, you're, you're kicking yourself in the shins right out of the gate. So treat the soil uh, with respect as a foundation, understand how it works. And that's why, truthfully, we go back to work with Mother Nature, not against it, is we understand how soil works the biology behind it and we don't want to destroy it right out of the gate and then sit there how many times have you heard i i, I plan my food plots now i'm praying for rain i'm praying for um this to occur it's like yeah because you just destroyed your soil and you just are letting it sit there and bake yeah. and now you ha the only chance you have is is for rain to come within a certain period of time to make it successful that's that's not smart and so that's why we're utilizing thatch and no-till techniques to get us through tougher times um, and still have that success. So, so in addition to not tilling up the soil and not ripping apart all the life that's going on underneath the surface there, in addition to trying to maintain some kind of organic matter on top of that thatch, these are all things, like you said, that are going to help build the foundation for your food plot. Another thing that I know helps with this is having that diversity of species that you're planting. Because that's in line with nature, Absolutely. right? The monoculture is not a natural thing out 100%. there in the natural landscape. Um, can you guys elaborate a little bit on why you guys find diversity not just in line with nature, but also so beneficial from a wildlife habitat standpoint? And then one of you, I think maybe it was Adam, you started listing some of the species that you plant. But can you give me a whole breakdown of, of everything that's going to be in your fall food plot blend or as much as you're willing to share and, and why each piece of that puzzle? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so when it comes to why, why we try to plant diversity versus monocultures, and I know ADHD and a horrible memory, I, I may forget part of this answer, but <laughs> here we go. When it comes to trying to avoid the monocultures, um, for instance, soybeans, a huge, hugely popular f summer food plot. You plant that and it's basically you have whatever bare ground and soybeans. It's just perfect pickings for a deer to go out and stand or move through and completely overbrowse this area. But if you add diversity, there's species within these um, 
most of our plantings that deer don't eat until a certain stage. For instance, milo or millet, they won't eat it until it produces a seed head. So that whole time you have this little bit of a protection for whatever young species is accompanying that. And so deer can't overbrowse those food plots nearly as much. But at the same time, each species mines or uses a certain nutrient out of the soil. So they're putting roots down in the soil and mining those nutrients from deep within and bringing that back up near the surface to where the next crop, once it's terminated, the next is that adequately available. Um, and so at the same time, just like nature, they all lean on each other and support each other. So some species may not like the heat nearly as much as another species, but because it's next to that species that can flourish in the heat, it can withstand it a little better because it's it's leaning on it for support. They're holding nutrients together. They have a different root system. One may be a taproot, and the other one may be a fiber root system to where you have this diversity all working together to create a ecosystem, yeah. if you will. E even some of, some of those species are shading out the other species until those ones get browsed, and then, then it's basically they're next in line to for their time to shine, and they're hitting that later portion of the summer um, where they're more attractive and palatable. So you're not banking on one crop to do something for, let's say, however many months and withstand all the things that Mother Nature is going to throw at it, whether it's bugs, whether it's disease, whether it's um, wind, whether it's a lack of rainfall. You have, let's say, 10 different species that are all working together among each other and that all can withstand and, and basically fight through those difficult times, making that food plot itself attractive from April till October. That's a think about think about just the seasons that we go through. We go through spring, summer, and fall in that that span of time. And you're trying if you're playing a monoculture, not diversity within food plots, you're banking on that um, that crop to be flexible with that big a swing of temperatures and everything like that. So if you're playing diversity, you know that all those crops are going to be able to, again, have their peak, have their time of attraction, and basically work with each other to make that food plot out of the gate from April all the way to October just shine and attractive and beneficial. Or from August to May. Yeah, um, if you're planting fall. And right. if you're planting fall. So here's the species that we typically try to include, and we tweak it every year, but these are some of our favorites. Um, and I'll, I'll list I'll explain why. Plot. So we love purple top turnips. Um, we love a different type of turnip, maybe a, a forage turnip, so it can handle browse pressure a little better than the purple top turnip. We love radishes, whether it be a nitro or a daikon or a gopher radish. We love those. Um, Austrian winter peas. Um, we love getting into some of our uh, grains. We love cereal rye, tricale, oats, and wheat. Um, and then we also love annual clovers, and we're growing very fond of Balenza and Versine clovers and crimson uh, clover. Um, and I think that would pretty much – hairy vetch is another one that we really like. Um, and you combine all those together, and you have grasses, and you have legumes, and you have broadleaves. And just like nature, you've got the big, the big three types and uh, the big three, and you can really bust up compaction you can mine nutrients and you can prevent erosion 
Um, at the same time, if you look at each of those species, just use the cereal grains. Oats are a tremendous attraction during the early fall, during that October, early November timeframe. Um, wheat and triticale and cereal rye may take a little longer to, to get that root system established and, and get where deer actually browse on it. But those are tremendous plants to have in your food plot acres for that late winter, early spring when there's hardly anything else green on the landscape. Um, then you look at radishes, they're really attractive during the early part of the season. Um, but then as you get those first heavy frosts, that's when the deer can shift over and really browse on the purple top turnips and the forage turnips. Um, and it kind of takes the pressure off those radishes to where they can continue making a, uh, a tuber and break up the compaction. Um, then you look at the clovers, and they're going to provide great forage midway through the fall. Um, they're not doing a whole lot during the winter, but then in the spring, they take off like crazy and Incredible. provide more forage than almost anything you could, anything else you could plant at the same time fixation, fixating a ton of nitrogen. That's incredible. And, and, and you think about, okay, that time span again, look at it from what, what that acre food plot is going through from planting in late summer all the way till spring termination um, in, in mid-April. That is an incredible swing of temperatures. And there's typically, let's, I think that was about 14 species or so that we plant. And at any given time, early, middle to late um, in, that, in that month swing there, there's about four species that are just getting it all together. And so each one has its peak. And you, you can walk out in the food plot, let's say, four weeks after germination. You're like, oh, yeah, those oats are cranking. The radishes, the turnips are doing awesome. You come back in December, and there's a whole another host of species. They're like, wow, they're really foraging on this. And then come spring, it's a whole nother suite in that same plot, in that same mixture that's like, this is incredible. This yeah. is why we do what we do because – you're working with Mother Nature. There's not a point that, I mean, if you just planted oats the first couple, after the first couple hard frosts, you're pretty much toasted, sitting idle till spring. Yeah. Or weeds grow and yeah. your winter annuals start growing. And uh, I guess the analogy I would use is think of it like that's, this is pretty lame, but the, the game Red Rover, Red Rover, where you all join hands and you're trying to keep the other team from. <laughs> once you, you do that with your diverse plantings, I should have used. Defensive linemen, shouldn't I? Yeah, football. that would have been better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Every, everyone's judging you right now. We're well aware of his athletic experiences. Monarch, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So basically, they're all supporting each other and providing. They're all flourishing um, to where you have something on the table to eat, something on the table to, um, to mine nutrients and prevent erosion from planting all the way till – termination or all the way through the next summer. I mean, some of those those annual clovers will be green. If you didn't terminate them, they'll be green all the way till almost July. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. You know, it, it sounds super complicated and really complex, but the, the principle is super easy. Just understand how Mother Nature works and complement it in the way that you choose to manage your land. And you're going to see incredible results by doing that. It's It's not like this is anything new. It's just, you know, we, we've looked at the, these principles and said, okay, how can we complement that in our, in our strategies of managing the land? And luckily we're, we're seeing 
awesome results with it. And so are clients. So it's, it's fun to see, okay, when I really study this stuff and, and do, let's say nerd out on biology, I'm, I'm right there where I should be. And I know that the land is healthier because of the practices and the techniques and the way I'm choosing to manage it. I think it's very, very easy to get caught up in just the methods instead of just understanding the principles, the baseline and making management decisions off of principles versus those methods. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. So, so one of the things that I... When I got into like the food plotting world, I was definitely following a lot of like, the conventional wisdom out there. And one of the things that I was always worried about with diversity, with blends, was that if you mash a bunch of things together, you're not going to properly, you're not going to do things right for any one of them perfectly. So you will plant some stuff. If we're planting everything at the same time, that means nothing's planted at just the right time. So I would think to myself, okay, I would rather plant my brassicas at the perfect time to plant brassicas. And then I want to plant my oats at the perfect time to plant oats. And so to do that, I would separate them out. So I plant, in my case, I tried to achieve a small degree of diversity by putting them in the same plot, but doing strips. So I do a strip of brassicas, strip of oats, strip of brassicas. And I thought that was a way to, to, to get things going as optimally as possible. And you also hear the idea that if you plant blends, then you're going to be shading out certain things that should be getting sun, and then they're not going to be as beneficial as they could be. Back to conventional wisdom of why, you know, 
industrial farmers plant monocultures, right? You get your most bang for your buck as far as the amount of production per acre. If it's all the one thing, knocking it out of the park and managing specifically for that for that one species. What is the argument against those concerns? Is there anything to worry about? There? I think you must have read the same article as me when I was 15. Uh, <laughs> we, we had that mindset too, or I guess had read that to where you don't mix cereal grains with brassicas. Um, and it was like, well, okay, that makes sense. One is trying to take this nutrient and this one's trying to take it from, from him and they're just trying to steal it from each other. Um, and I think that comes down to the mindset of managing for a species and not managing for the land. Um, and I think for us, if you planted, if you went out and you planted a straight monoculture of, and you stripped it out and you just tested and you said, okay, here's a straight test of purple top turnips. Here's a test of oats. Here's a test of wheat. Here's a test of, uh, annual clovers. You're going to see gaps in every single one of those um, plantings. The purple top turnips, they may overbrowse it. Uh, and so January hits and it may be just a mud strip. Um, the oats is going to be yellow by December and it's just going to lay there yellow until the spring when winter annuals grow. But if you plant them, if you took all those and you mixed them together, you'll see during those gaps when purple top turnips may be declining that another species in that mix, that's its, its heyday and it's going to shoot through and flourish. So for us, it's been years of testing those diverse blends and going, there's really not a time where we're not providing something. But if we looked at the monocultures, there's a time where, and it's usually a lot bigger gap of not benefiting the wildlife than when it is benefiting the wildlife. And so that's where I think for us, it was like, this is, this is we need to look back at the way nature was designed and nowhere in nature if it's if it's actually acting the way nature was designed, that there's not diversity. And I think that, you know, back to that the agricultural standpoint of, of planting them this way and whatever, you know, their management strategies are different from our management strategies of the food plot once it's planted. Yeah. Um, and two, they're looking at it from a harvest standpoint, whereas we're looking at it from, oh, deer are gonna be my combine. I want them to be the ones and I don't ever hear them complain as to the fact I mixed plants together because they're natural browsers. There's 300 plus species in their diet that they can eat. And we don't ever see, you know, in nature, just one of those in a field and they're just selecting to go that field. Um, they're every, every step through our managed timber, there's something that they can eat that's different from the last step because of the diversity that's there. No different from the food plot. And just from a, a hunting strategy standpoint, Right, I would want to bank or throw all my chips in at one species that is going to peak just during November. I hunt from September all the all the way to mid January here in Missouri. So, why not make that food plot attractive from September all the way through January? So, by mixing things all together and planting them, I can achieve that. Whereas a single species, I'm not achieving that or making that, again, food plot acres be most attractive it can be and valuable to the property. It's kind of like an economy of scale. Like it doesn't, you can, you can plant at the same amount, in the same amount of time, all these species mixed in one as you can, let's say just wheat. You know, it doesn't take any more time. So why, 
why not do that and make it more attractive? Going back to the comparison with agriculture, I think also, Mark, you've, you've looked enough into regenerative agriculture to see that the guys who are planting uh, grain crops and using the regenerative agriculture methods, they're still planting. Like uh, one of our favorites to follow is Gabe Brown, and he plants mm-hmm. corn, and then two or three days later, he drills um, uh, over that planting to where he's got different species growing underneath that the corn, um, which are basically helping him fight weeds and still and and fight erosion and and really mine nutrients. And so, I think the whole regenerative agriculture and then this holistic mindset go hand in hand. It just depends on whether you're in the wildlife field or agricultural field. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense, and uh, I am. I am taking the leap this year, as I mentioned. So I, I'm not only just going to try no-till, but also going to go full diversity. Going to be uh, slinging all sorts of seed out there and seeing how it goes. So you, you have me convinced. Um, you can awesome. you can join our Red Rover. Oh, I mean defensive line team if you want. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so so sort of along these lines, still um, as we're as we're talking about ways to work hand in hand. Nature, as we're talking about ways to try to, um, you know, take a look at ways to depart a little bit from the conventional agricultural world, is the whole topic of herbicide. You guys have mentioned using herbicide through some of your management uh, tasks as we've talked today, but I also know from some previous uh, chats and stuff with Adam and, and reading and hearing some of the other things that you do have some concerns or some thoughts around how we use herbicides and, and what kind of impacts that may or may not have. Can can one of you just kind of give me the the land and legacy perspective on herbicide use and then uh, what that means to how you use it? Yeah, I, well, we can send them back to your, your article too and say, if you want to hear more, there you go. That's kind of our mindset yeah. is always try to, as we said, replicate nature and, and do what nature designed. And obviously herbicides aren't something that was happening pre-settlement, but at the same time, neither were invasive species or non-natives. So that's where we really come into using the herbicides like uh, old field management requires herbicide. Uh, you, If you have a turf grass that's non-native, Tillage is not going to kill it. Heavy mowage is not going, mowing is not going to kill it. Herbicide, a one-time application can kill it. I guess our biggest concern um, with herbicides is the, and, and we're not, I mean, I'd hate to say that we're jumping up and down saying ban all herbicide, but we definitely want to think about our, uh, our use of it and try to limit it as much as possible. Not because I guess we're, we're concerned and Matt and I go out and spray in hazmat suits, but more of it just doesn't, it's just not a natural thing. Uh, we can find other ways to, to replicate nature and still reach our goals. But when it comes to food plot usage or food plots and herbicide, I guess our biggest fear and, and concern where we always get is the idea of spraying a herbicide or a chemical on a plant that then the, you spray it during the day and then a, a group of deer move in during the night and then they eat that forage that you've coated in a herbicide and then you turn around and, and go and kill them in a few months. And I, I, it just raises some concerns for us on, I think there's not enough known about it to say yay or nay. And so because of that, 
unknown side of it, we're just going to limit it as much as possible. Yeah, there's there's definitely instances where that's the best practice and you're going to spend your rules trying to do anything else. And when we apply it, we try and find the scenarios where it's a one-time application, you're done. And you walk away and then you choose to use other techniques like prescribed fire then to manage that site, like old fields, or let's say you have a woodlot that's just overgrown with bush honeysuckle, you go in, do a cut stump treatment, and you're simply applying an herbicide to the stump itself. It's not just this massive, um, broad spectrum, just slinging herbicide everywhere. It's very specific, and that's okay. And then again, you're going to follow up that that woodlot management with prescribed fire and keep everything else at bay. So that's the way we prefer to utilize it um, and and not just go overboard and and know why you're doing it, have a direct reason um, and limit its, its, uh, its usage. I mean, like, like clover plots, how many, how many people are utilizing like a two, four DB or, or a clepidem Mm -hmm. um, and and it's like, go in and you could, you could simply just spot spray those areas. you're, or, you're, mow. or mow and, and you're covering, you know, with a broad spectrum, you're covering a lot of the, the food plot. Anyhow, just, just go in and spot treat those areas and, and just target those clumps of grasses um, or those clumps of broadleafs in the clover instead of covering the entire acre. Do you might, you might limit it down to 200 square feet of herbicide versus entire acre. Just you know, simple things like that. It goes a long way. So what if, someone's listening and they for whatever reason if, if it's some of the things you've discussed or they have other apprehensions around herbicide use there's a lot of people that want to really go organic with the stuff they eat and so they're thinking okay if i want to be really focused on organic produce at the same time it'd be great if the food plots i'm putting out there for the deer that i hope to eat are quote-unquote organic as well there's there's folks that really want to prioritize that kind of thing if we want to do an herbicide free food plot which I know you guys have been experimenting with, um, how would someone go about adjusting the food plot regimen you've discussed? How do you adjust that to become a food or an herbicide-free food plot? Don't, don't apply herbicide. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that like as, as, a, as a joke, but, but truthfully, in, in this year's experiment, it was, okay, here's a fall planting. It's now mid-May. It's a, about two foot tall. And and, and that fall planting is all annual based. So we're just going to set the drill in it and drive and plant the whole thing. And these annuals are all going to mature and that's going to kind of dry up, shrivel up. And then the, the food plot itself is going to grow up amongst all of this vegetation. So instead of utilizing that thatch and laying it on the ground, you're simply letting it stay standing. And then your food plot in the spring grows up amongst it and you haven't applied any herbicide i think in simple terms what you really i guess best advice for trying to do an organic food plot would be diversity um and then also a plant or plants growing year round um anytime you leave bare ground or you leave an area where you haven't put a plant to grow whether it be a cool season or a warm season nature will put something there and so, and it could be a noxious weed. So if you're putting a species down 
So in the fall, you plant something. In the spring, you plant something to where you keep that soil covered. You keep something growing year round, but you pick. That's going to be your best way at avoiding having to add herbicide to kill noxious weeds. Yep. That makes that makes sense. So we're we're doing all these things. Let's say we we've prioritized diversity. We are trying to find ways to minimize our herbicide use, or at least be thoughtful about how we're doing that. Um, we're making sure to take advantage of natural systems to to get the best out of the soil, to get the best out of the native landscape. And now we're getting into let's say this time period, August. Hunting season is a month or two months away. Um, what are some of the other things that folks can be doing? And let's stay focused on the food plot side of things for a moment here. Are there any other things that we could be doing to enhance our process? Um, like, for example, I, I know one thing you guys talk about is feathering edges. Can you talk about that or anything else that we can be doing to take things to the next level? I th- oh, yeah, for sure. There's So one thing that we see a lot, and especially in crop country, is the dedication to a grain uh, saying, okay, this field is going to be standing corn or standing beans during the late season. It's going to be money. Well, that it, it most likely will be. There's a reason guys are planting those. But at the same time, as soon as season's over or you have high deer density, at some point, all that food's going to be consumed and you're going to have stubble or you're going to mow it down and it's just going to be laying there vacant and opening up the, the window for weeds to grow, or uh, especially noxious weeds. So adding species, cover crops to those standing grain fields or standing bean fields, uh, food plots, whatever it is, to get, to get something growing there. Um, at the same time, if you do have a mild winter, you've got a very, a very productive um, food plot in case they're not eating the standing grain. Um, and I think uh, the misconception is planting season is late April, early May, or depending on your area for our area in Midwest, that's, that's what it is. You say late April, early May, that's spring planting and August or early September is your fall planting. But there's species like cereal, rye, and wheat that you can plant them up until it's four, it's 40 degrees, um, soil temperature, soil temperature. And so you could wait until those leaves fall off the soybeans and then broadcast your cereal rye in there. And if you get the appropriate amount of rain, you're going to have a great cover crop. Um, so if you do have a mild winter, deer are still coming to that area. That's one thing. Um, another big thing we recommend is adding diversity to clover plots. Um, and, and so I think a lot of times we plant clover plots and we may add wheat as a, as a companion or a nurse crop on the first year. But year four or five, we really start fighting weeds. And a big, the big reason for that is because you planted a legume, which is fixating nitrogen. Every growing season is putting nitrogen out. Over time, nature is replacing that, trying to get something to equal that soil out and use that nitrogen. So adding, taking it upon ourselves to say, I want to pick what's going to grow in my clover plot, add that wheat, add those turnips, or add that chicory, to your clover plots or alfalfa um, to where you have a species that's tapping into that nitrogen source and flourishing, and now you're providing more forage and not letting nature throw a noxious weed out there for you. You can do the same thing in the spring, but since we're focusing on fall, that'd be my two biggest points for for this this fall planting season is adding diversity to your grain fields um, through just 
broadcasting and then also adding diversity to your clover plot. And, and like you said there, Mark, you know, you can go in right now, chainsaw and feather the edge of some of these food plots and really begin to steer some deer closer to the stand. Um, maybe they're coming out between, you know, let's say, 30 and 50 yards away from your set or, or maybe your observations from last year from the stand, you saw that and you want you want them all to come out at 30 yards. Well, feather the edge, lay some trees parallel to the edge of the field and kind of create a, a living fence, a, a border, um, something that's going to push them closer to the stand and just increase your odds of having deer come within boat range. Um, but you can do that around lots of food plots and really um, – really increase your odds and that can be done july it can be done august it can be done the first of september um you know trees fall down branches fall tops come out of trees all it's not like it's this massive disturbance that a deer just stop and, and never enter or turn around and never come back even close to deer season you know cut it down walk away and then let let the deer kind of swing in closer to your bow stands simple yeah and lots of times it's those little things, though, that are relatively simple that can make all the difference, right? It's being thoughtful about Absolutely. every little piece you can put of the puzzle in place, which is why I geek out about this stuff so much myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think a big part of our learning and our, what we share today is learning from our own mistakes. And for years, we focused on maximizing food plots and trying to create food plots. And then it was like, we had the best looking food plot in the world, but they still come out on the other end and I can't, I can't shoot them. And so adding bedding areas or little clear cuts, bedding thickets, and then edge feathering is like, well, this is almost too easy to create and steer deer where we want them. So, so with all this in mind, and maybe you've already, maybe you've already given me your answer, but if you were to have to point your finger at the conventional wisdom out there, whatever it might be, that most frustrates you or that you wish you could just like snap your fingers or wave your magic wand um, and it would change. What's that one thing for each of you that you wish you could could just snap people out of it right now? And, and it could be something we've already talked about. You can reiterate it if you want or something new. Mm. That, is, a, that wow. is such a good question and I'm almost scared <laughs> to answer. <laughs> this is going to be good. Oh, it's really, man, that's really hard. I was not expecting that question, but there's, I almost, this might make you mad, but it's a little bit of a. <laughs> Stop I, listening I, I, I to Mark irritated by. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like the prioritizing the little things. Um and I know that's a blanket statement, but I'll give you an example. I see, let's take food plots, for example. And I love food plots. I'll say that forever. But food plots, most guys, I want everybody listening to think about how many acres your overall farm is and then how many acres is the food plot. And then think about how much time you spend whenever you look at a full year, 12 months, and you say, how much time did I spend here, 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 here? Overall, in our experience, we see more time spent on food plots and around food plots, and it still is less than 5% of the overall ratio of land. And I think seeing people prioritize on minute, tiniest of things, but putting all their eggs in that basket. To me, it's just like Michael Jordan goes out and he spends all practice 
all the entire practice shooting fadeaways in the corner as buzzer beaters. That was a very small part of his game, but he focuses his entire time working on that shot. It's the same thing we see with managing a landscape of I'm going to focus on food plots, trail cameras, and and ride around my food plots. One of my just biggest thing that that's kind of just irks me, I guess. And, and uh, I'll I'll say yes, agree to Adam, of course, because we we see things very similarly. And 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 for me, it is timber management or the lack thereof. So not focusing on the fact that your property is dominated by timber and you sit back and don't do anything. And we go to properties all the time, all across the country that are unmanaged. There's um, incredible browse lines through the timber. Um, There's invasive species coming in the timber. And a lot of people are very fearful for cutting or harvesting timber. And I can understand that. But, but at the same time, don't don't tell me that you want to make improvements to your farm and then not address the largest portion of your farm. There's there's ways to educate yourself on timber management, um, and there's ways to get things done in timber that doesn't require a timber harvest. Um, you know, aesthetics oftentimes play a big role into that. And again, we kind of have to go back and say, what are what are your goals for this property? And aesthetics usually isn't the top end. It's, I want to kill bigger, better, more deer. And so to achieve that, though, we have to address the 60% of your property that's timber and increase it because most times close canopy forest is 50 to 100 pounds digestible forage a year that deer will consume. And why not increase that and make some of it young forest? And now you're producing 1,000 pounds of digestible forage and it's better cover it makes no sense to me but oftentimes it's like the forgotten aspect of management is timber management yeah and i'll 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 add to that by making a little plug if you're wanting to learn more about that topic we did a whole episode with a couple guys from qdma about forestry for deer hunters and there's some really interesting in the weeds type content that we dive into on that side of things when it comes to timber stand management um that we don't have time to get into today but uh highly recommend checking that out too and since we do need to wrap it up and on this kind of line of thinking with resources if you guys could leave our listeners with one recommended resource each for if people are listening to this and are just intrigued to learn more about any of these topics or want to learn more about these ideas or how you've been inspired to think about habitat management in this more holistic way, in this more regenerative, in sync, in line with nature kind of way. Are there any things that inspired you or that you would recommend other people look to to learn more um, that might be helpful for folks? I always enjoy, I guess, on trying to understand the natural landscape. It always kind of goes back to that pre-settlement, pre-European settlement. And so I really enjoy, and unfortunately there's not just one, but for me, and I know you like books too, Mark, it's fortunately because you can read journals of explorers all across the country. And that has been a huge part of what Matt and I study and research and look at because 
if you if you even read one of them, you, chances are you're going to understand that what they saw is not what we see today. But at the same time, they see everything from tons of deer, elk, bison to prairie chickens or grouse. Um, and you just automatically just reading one of those journals will say, man, that was a much more productive landscape and things have changed. And so for us, it's always been how do we get that back? And my favorite will always be the Lewis and Clark journals um, just because of the details and then the, the vast uh, area that they covered. And if you listen to their or read their journals, you're going to see that the landscape was full of shrubs, grasses, and tons of animals. And um, it definitely is like we need to really look at our landscape because there was way more animals than, than what we have today. And yet there wasn't food plots or hinge cuts or edge feathering. There was prescribed fire and grazing. And so that's a big part of, of what we look at. Yeah, I'm going to have a kind of a unique answer here, but it's going to hopefully challenge the listeners. And there's not a lot of great resources out there for this type of thinking, specifically the hunting outdoor world. So I want to put the, the pressure on everyone listening saying everyone goes to, um, let's say, your property every couple weekends or you go to public ground and, and you spend a lot of time in the tree during the fall. And, and I guess my charge is you be your own person to think critically about your observations that you're seeing. Don't just sit in the stand and look on your phone and play on your phone. Look and, and see what's happening and occurring around you. And, and hopefully that's going to allow you to better understand how, let's say, a food chain works. Let's say how, um, you know, a timber, a timber stand is going to progress over time. Maybe you've hunted a, an area for a long time or how um, go check out and see if, if this, the state or, or the forestry service has done some prescribed fire in our area. Go out there, make observations and be critical um, of those observations. Don't just take it in and keep driving or go back playing on your phone. Really look around you as to what's happening. There's tons and tons of clues and things that you can see just in the natural world that I think after hearing this and hopefully adopting and changing a little bit of a mindset that a lot of things will begin to click for people. So, of course, go and read, um, hopefully listen to you know this podcast and others and begin to just honestly uh, adopt a mindset. And then I think your eyes are going to be able to see things differently and you understand how the natural world works better if you go into, let's say, the next time you're in the woods with a little bit different of a mindset and try and see things differently. Yeah, it's a, it's a great suggestion. And if people want to find more resources from you guys, which I know there's a lot, you guys are producing a lot of great content, where would you recommend folks go to connect with you to, to learn more from you two specifically? I appreciate that. Of course, we do two podcasts a week over on Sportsman's Nation. That's just Land and Legacy. If they search us on iTunes, they'll find us. Uh, we're also starting to put out more videos. Um, they're not, shoot, I'm the one producing them. So they're not highly produced. They're not cinematic, but they have the information and tidbits that, that we talk about on the podcast. And we have some Upland consultants as well. And so we're all the time dropping new videos to show people exactly what it is we're talking about. Um, so just search Land and Legacy there. 
And then uh, your consulting business, they can find your website just through a Google search, yeah? Yep, landalegacy.tv. And uh, we should be there, and, and or they can just shoot us a message on uh, social media, Lana Legacy, either or, Instagram or Facebook. Or email at info at landandlegacy.tv. Perfect. Lots of ways to contact us, and we're happy to help anybody. Awesome. Well, uh, I appreciate you guys helping us out here today, sharing a lot of helpful information. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed consuming a lot of your content and getting a chat with you guys now just reiterates um, what I found to be true, which is that you guys are are doing a great service, bringing a, a slightly different perspective to people to the table. And I think it's an important one. And I think a lot of us will benefit from it moving forward. So thank you for that. Thanks for your time. And uh, we should chat again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. And that's going to do it. So thank you for listening. Hopefully you were inspired to look at your habitat management projects, maybe in a new light now. Maybe try some new things. Maybe go against the grain just a little bit and try out one of these new ideas. I certainly will. And if you do too, let me know. I'm really curious to hear how your new management efforts go this year. So Thank you all for listening. Appreciate you being a part of this. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.